turn to Genesis chapter 11, the end of Genesis 11. We are going to be looking at Hebrews 11 in a few minutes, but as the book of Hebrews talks about these these, uh, saints and believers who trusted in the Lord, it's important that we get a sense of the context of what's going on in their lives. And so we'll be looking at Sarah this morning. While you're turning there, let me just say that for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to refer to Abraham and Sarah. When their story begins, they're Abraham or Abram and Sarai. It's in Genesis 11 or 17, I'm sorry, where the Lord says to Abram, you're no longer going to be called Abram, which means exalted father. You're going to be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And Sarai which means princess, is no longer going to be called Sarai. She'll be called Sarah, which means princess. I can't find any reason why the Lord made that change. I have a guess. I can't prove it from Scripture, so I I always try to be careful with that. My guess is that Sarai was actually a proper name, and Sarah was a title. Because he goes on in chapter 17 to say she's going to be Uh, the mother of a multitude, basically, and kings and noble people will come from her. So I think that there's a recognition of who she is, but that she's going to bear this title. But I'm just going to refer to them as Abraham and Sarah, even though the text won't always say that. And then just as a final point, as we see in in Genesis 17, they they are 10 years apart in age, and we're going to be considering that uh, in part as we look at the text. Let's pray, and then we will read together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We ask that you would bless this time as we come to your word, as we seek to be nourished, as we seek to be taught and to be encouraged in our faith, to hear what you have said. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you have knit together the scriptures, going back so far, uh, 2,000 years really before the birth of Jesus, and now 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, we're looking at the same scriptures and seeing that from Genesis all the way to Revelation and and to the book of Hebrews this morning, there is a consistent teaching. There is consistent doctrine. We thank you for preserving your word for us. And in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So looking at Sarah and Abraham, we're going to be looking at their story in three acts. Three acts. And it actually breaks down very neatly that way as three acts. Uh, If you look at classic plays on the stage and even movies in Hollywood, you'll see that usually they exist in three acts. The first act is an introduction of the characters into the situation. The second act is where everything seems to fall apart and become difficult. And the third act is where everything is resolved. Sometimes in Hollywood, it's not always a Hollywood ending. But we're going to see that with Abraham and Sarah. We're going to see them introduced in the first act and, and their, their situation, we're going to see in the second act the, uh, a tension introduced. And then the, the third act, we're going to see God's resolution. And then we'll, as I said, then we'll move into Hebrews 11. So beginning with uh, Sarah and Abraham in, uh, in Genesis 11 and 12, Abraham is 75, which makes Sarah 65. We're told right at the very end of Genesis 11, verse 29, that Abram 
and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And then in verse 30, we are told very explicitly, very clearly, Sarah was barren. She had no child. That's really kind of the setup for her story. And that, that truth is going to drive what we see. As Genesis 12 opens, God calls Abraham to leave Ur, and uh, he does. He and his family, they leave, they go to Haran. We put these pictures together from uh, different passages of Scripture. His father dies in Haran. He and Sarah, their nephew Lot, (coughs) all of their possessions, they travel south to Canaan, which God identifies as the promised land. And in that promised land, the Lord says to the, for the first time to Abraham, to your descendants, I will give this land. They're childless. They're childless. We've just been told at the end of chapter 11 that Sarah's barren. She has no children. And God has just said to your descendants, I will give this land. He doesn't explain how any of that's going to work. He simply makes the promise. Because of a famine, they continue south into Egypt. Abraham is afraid for his life. It says in verse 11, it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it will go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Pharaoh ended up paying Abraham Abraham a very large dowry for her, thinking that she was his sister, took her into his home. God did what Abraham refused to do. He defended Sarah and her purity and her dignity. It says in verse 17, the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Pharaoh came back. He was understandably angry. Verse 18, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And he ordered his soldiers to basically gather them all up and evict them. Off they go. It's interesting, just kind of as as a side statement here, that what we see in, in the Old Testament scriptures is God frequently refers to Israel as his wife, right? He refers to Israel as his wife, sometimes as an unfaithful wife, but he refers to Israel as his wife. So I think maybe we have a foreshadowing here that Sarah is essentially taken captive in Egypt against her will. This is Abraham's idea. And God sends great plagues to deliver her out of the hands of the Egyptians. God does what Abraham won't do. They return to the promised land in in chapter 13. There were some events with Lot, and then God repeats the promise to Abraham. In verse 16, he says to Abraham, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. And then we... We move on again. There are some other events that take place. And in chapter 15, we come to the second act. Abraham is now 85. Sarah is now 75. God comes and makes the promise again. In verse 5 of chapter 15, he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. 
And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then in this interesting statement, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And it makes me wonder, what's happened the previous 10 years? What happened when God first called Abraham to leave? Abraham obeyed. What happened when God said to Abraham in chapter 12, to your descendants I will give this land. And in chapter 13, your descendants will be like the dust of the ground. We're not told that Abraham believed it then. But we are told that he believes it now and that it is credited to him as righteousness. Now, within the the text, there's there's no break between chapter 15 and chapter 16, and it just continues right on. So Abraham goes back to Sarah, having had this conversation with God, and says, God said, I am going to be the father of a multitude, and that they won't be countable. There will be so many that we can't number them. And Sarah seems to be a very rational person. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. We can understand Sarah's thinking. God promised descendants to Abraham. God prevented her from having children. There must be another way we are supposed to approach this. And so she gives Abraham her maid, her slave, is the sense here, Hagar. Verse 3, she gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Hagar conceived gave birth to a son. When she conceived, Sarah immediately had regrets. And she ends up being very embittered. And and this is that conflict that's introduced. And the conflict is introduced because of, of something that you and I can do very easily ourselves. And that is think that that we are to bring about God's promises through our power. That when God has promised to do something, it's up to us to actually bring it about and make it happen. God doesn't need my help. He doesn't need your help. We don't make anything better by deciding we need to stick our oar in the water and help God achieve what he wants to do. The promise of God is not just a prediction about what will happen. It's a promise of what he is going to do in his time, through his means. He calls us to believe him, not to help him. We get into all sorts of trouble when we try to help him. If we try to bring about his purposes and our strength and our wisdom, the best that can happen is that we will fail and suffer for it. And the worst that can happen, actually worse than what happens to Abraham and Sarah, the worst that can happen is we can lose our faith and decide that God can't be trusted because we assumed that he was going to bless us and we haven't trusted him. It's hard to imagine the amount of conflict that this decision Sarah made and Abraham's agreement created. Hagar's son Ishmael became the father of the Arab peoples. The Lord says to Hagar later on in, uh, in verse 12 of chapter 16, He will be a wild donkey of a man. 
His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And that has remained true ever since. As you look at the troubles in the Middle East, as you look at the issues between uh, the, the, the Arabic Muslim peoples and Israel, what you're seeing is a battle between stepbrothers. It's a family argument. And it's not going to be resolved until the Lord returns. Sarah ends up being terribly embittered by this experience. In fact, she blames Abraham. In verse 5, may the wrong, she says to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. And, and I'm not justifying anything that Abraham did here, but he has to be thinking, this wasn't my idea. This was your idea. There's, there's not a man in here who can understand what it means to not be able to have a child. And maybe some of the women can't understand what it means to not be able to have a child. We had a period of infertility before Kevin was conceived. Other women are never able to have a child. And we can't imagine the amount of pain that that brings. We can't imagine the suffering that women endure because of that. And Sarah is so eager to deal with that that she steps in, she helps God where he doesn't need help, and it doesn't work well. Don't help God. Trust him. The third act comes in chapter 17 and 18. The end of chapter 16 says Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 17 uh, 1 says now when Abram was 99 years old, so In between 16 and 17, there's a 13-year span of time. Again, the Lord appears to Abraham and promises him descendants, and he promises now to bring them specifically through Sarah. Verse 15, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, Kings of peoples will come from her. This catches Abraham off guard. He falls down laughing. He fell on his face and he laughed. And he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then he asks God to accept Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. Oh, that you would accept Ishmael. And, and I used to kind of look at this as this, this passionate plea of Abraham because he loves Ishmael. I don't think there's any question he loves his son. Oh, that you would accept Ishmael. But now I think when you combine it with the laughter, maybe what we're seeing is God sa- or Abraham saying, oh, you don't need to. I have a son. I already have a son. Weren't you here? Didn't you see that? I got Ishmael. I, I don't, we don't need another child. It's unnecessary. And God says, no. Verse 19, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. 
Not long after this, in verse chapter 18, it's not a long period of time at all. The Lord appears again, and he repeats this promise that Sarah is going to have a child. In verse 10, and this time he says it in Sarah's hearing. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. I want to be careful because of the little ears in the room. But he's not talking, she's not talking about the pleasure of being a mother. She's talking about the pleasure of conceiving. She's talking about the pleasure of physical intimacy. They have finally gotten to the point with Abraham being 99 at this point, Sarah being 89 at this point, where that's done. It's been done for a while. It's no longer thinkable. Now, Sarah dies at the age of 127. Abraham dies at the age of 175. If you kind of compare 127 to to 80 or 85 years, the average today, then when we first meet Sarah, she's in her 40s for us. And it's not unthinkable at this point. But at, at this point now, she's past all of that. And so she laughs. God says, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. And he says, yeah, 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 you did. Yeah, you did. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year. And Sarah will have a son. And as God had promised, Sarah conceived. There was another weird and strange and painful episode where Abraham again denies that she's his wife. Just, I I don't get this guy. And then in chapter 21, the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. That's verse 1. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Sarah says in verse Six, God has made laughter for me. Isaac means laughter. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. There are other details that are, that are found in their story, and uh, some of those details are, are painful. They're not all that pleasant, but... For, for now, let's go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. With that foundation of understanding of who Sarah was and what her story was like. And we read this of Sarah in verses 11 and 12. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that 
as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. By faith, Sarah received the ability to conceive. Isaac was a long time in coming. When we first meet Abraham and Sarah, she is 65 years old. When Isaac is born, she's 90 years old. There's a 25-year span of time where they meditated on and chewed on and thought about these promises of God and where the promises of, of God developed over time. The Lord waited so long to fulfill this promise that the, the fulfillment could not be given. Nobody could receive the credit for the fulfillment except God. Had she conceived at 65, it wouldn't have been surprising. It didn't say in chapter 11 that she was barren, she had no children, and she was beyond the age of childbearing. We don't get to that until she's 89. And God says, nobody's going to get credit for this but me. We're going to do this in a way that makes it clear that I'm governing the history of my people. And Sarah trusted the Lord. She put her trust in him. Now, she laughed at the idea of her conceiving. But that laughter is not unbelief. It's really interesting how many commentaries I read this week that said, oh, she didn't believe. It doesn't say that. They try and even compare her to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, but Sarah laughed. Abraham laughed too. When God says, no, your 89-year-old wife is going to get pregnant and give birth. Abraham laughed. It's not unbelief. It's more shock and the absurdity of it. Wait, are you kidding now? There was a time in our married life where we thought, we've got three children, Kevin, Sarah, and Grace, and we thought after Grace was born, maybe another child, and we, I was, we were both in our, in our later 30s, and we just thought maybe God has done this for us. And then, and then that kind of went away. And especially once, once our daughter Sarah got married and we, we, she started giving us grandchildren, then it was, oh, grandchildren are really cool. And you can, you can play with them and shake them and get them loaded on sugar and send them home. You don't have to... You, you, get, you get all the good stuff of the grandkids. And if the Lord came to me now and said, Linda's going to have a baby, I'd laugh. <laughs> really? Now? Couldn't have done this 20 years ago when Sarah believed God. And, and notice what it says about her faith. She considered him faithful who had promised. She considered God faithful. What, what does that mean? I think that there's three aspects to that. First is that she had faith in the person of God. She had faith in the person of God. She didn't have faith that she would have a baby. She didn't have faith that her faith would cause her to have a baby. She had faith in the person of God. She trusted Him. She leaned on Him. She committed herself to Him. Nowhere does the text say that she thought that a baby was possible or likely or that her faith was powerful. What it says is that she considered God to be faithful. And and even with the promise in Genesis 18, where she believes, she's got to go through a whole new painful episode 
of Abraham telling yet another weird lie about her being his sister and not his wife. And it, it was partially true. They had the same father and different mothers. But clearly wife was the key relationship. And then the scripture says the Lord did for her what he had promised and she conceived. The focus of Sarah's faith is not the baby. It's not faith itself. It's the person of God. She trusted the person of God. The second thing is that Sarah had faith in the power of God. She trusted that God could do what he promised to do. When he says in Genesis 18, is anything too difficult for the Lord? She concluded, no, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He can do what he promises to do. He can do what he says he will do. Everything was over physically between them. But she believed that God could enable them, that his power was sufficient. She believed in the person of God. She believed in the power of God. And she had faith in the character of God. She believed that God would keep his promise, that he wasn't teasing her that he wasn't playing games with her emotions. He wasn't being cruel with her. He wasn't being arbitrary with her. I, th- I think we could say that there's nothing in Sarah's life that caused her more pain than being barren. There's nothing more sensitive for her. There's no, th- there, there's no issue in her life that, that is, is more sensitive and delicate than this. And when God says, you are going to have a child, she entrusted herself to his character. And she didn't say, no, you're just playing with me. You're just being cruel to me. She had faith in his character. Now, Isaac wasn't born because Sarah wanted a baby. Isaac was born because through Abraham and Sarah, God was going to bring an entire line and family of people that would ultimately culminate in the birth of the Savior. It's interesting. God says to Abraham twice that his descendants will be innumerable, impossible to count. The first time he says, count the dust of the ground if you can. You can't. That's what your descendants will be like. The next time he says, count the stars in the sky. And I I don't know that I fully agree with this, but there there are a number of commentators who say that we're looking at the two families of Abraham. We're looking at the physical descendants of Abraham, the dust of the ground, the earthly. Not only the Jewish people, but the Arab peoples that came through Ishmael. And that the stars in the sky represent the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Those who have the faith of Abraham. You and I have been born again through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And been brought into the covenant of Abraham with God. I I really don't know what I think about that. But it's it's an interesting idea. Either way, between the physical descendants and the spiritual descendants, Abraham has more children than anybody but Adam and Noah. He has a vast, vast family. That's what the Lord was doing. 
And yet it's perfectly legitimate and true and real that Sarah experienced deep joy and fulfillment at the birth of Isaac. He wasn't just a child born. He was precious to her. I think she experienced greater joy and satisfaction than if he had been born to the two of them when they were in their 20s. This was a child that she had prayed for and asked for and longed for and eventually stopped asking for because it just didn't seem possible. She trusted in the character of God. As as we think about bringing this home, those are the three areas of of faith for you and I to consider. Do we have faith in the person of God? In the existence of God? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is. You actually have to believe that God exists. I read an exchange on Twitter yesterday. This, this, the, the original post simply called Christians to holiness. And... The the follow-up comments, for the most part, were so obscene and pornographic that I was shocked, including statements by people who claim to be Christians. Their God isn't going to judge or condemn anyone. And, And they're actually right. Their God won't because they're not worshiping the God of the Bible. They're worshiping a God of their own creation, a God that they can mold and shape by their own imaginations. That kind of a God cannot help you. You cannot decide in your own mind and imagination who God is and what he is like and then call on him to help you. And that's not what Sarah did. What Sarah did was say, I trust the God who is. I trust in him Not the idea of God, but in God himself. Do you believe that God exists? I'm not trying to be funny. Do you yourself believe that there is a divine person who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who created everything from nothing, who rules as the unchanging, holy, sovereign God of the universe, who is deeply concerned with and involved with every aspect of his creation? That when you close your eyes and bow your knees in prayer, there is a person listening to you. Or are you just appealing to the idea? If you're just appealing to the idea, I I urge you to turn away from your sin and turn to the God who is. And believe in his person. Believe in him. He's not a figurehead. The second thing is that Sarah had faith in the power of God. There are people who deny that God will work where he has promised to work. Scripture says that salvation is by grace through faith, but there are many people in our world who believe that they must earn their salvation, that God needs their help. That's what Abraham and Sarah thought, God needs our help. It didn't work out well for them. If you think God needs your help saving you, it will not work out well for you. He doesn't need your help. He calls upon you to trust him and to believe in him. 
There are others who believe that evangelism is, is, is really completely up to them. That as they go share the gospel, it's up to them to make people hungry. It's up to them to make people feel bad about their sin. It's up to them to persuade people to believe. You're going to fail every time. There, there's not a being that cares more about saving the lost than the God who is. And he doesn't send us to do the work of saving. He sends us to do the work of proclaiming his salvation and his Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says that when we do that, he will convict of sin. He will grant repentance. He will grant faith. Our job isn't to figure out how to make the message presentable and acceptable. Our job is to be as simple and clear as we can. And to trust in his power to actually do the work. Do you believe that the Lord can actually do what he's promised to do? Do you believe that he can do anything he chooses to do? This has a really practical outcome. If, if you believe that God can't save you without your help, then you're going to have to believe that he can't keep you saved without your help. And there are people who believe that they can lose their salvation. Here's the problem with that. If you believe that God can't keep you saved today without your help, you have to believe to be, to be consistent that he can't keep you in eternity without your help. And that in a billion years, it's possible for you in the presence of God, worshiping him for all that time to decide, I'm done, I'm going to go to hell. And that God will say, oh, I wish you wouldn't but I can't stop you. Is that the kind of God that you believe in? Or do you believe the God who says, I will keep you, I will never let you go, I will never forsake you, I will not let you out of my hand, can keep you? That's the God I pray you believe. And then finally, faith in the character of God. Not a person in here who hasn't suffered not a person in here who hasn't gone through pain, the, the pain of, of illness and sickness, the pain of losing family members to death and to suicide, the, the, the pain of ongoing anguish over issues that we're powerless to, to, to resolve. Do you believe that God is love? Do you believe that God is holy, that he is righteous, that he is good, that he is kind? that he is compassionate and merciful and long-suffering? Or do you believe that God's character is like your character and it all depends on what kind of a day he's having? Do you believe that when you come to the Lord in your need and you say, Lord, my heart is aching, my heart is breaking over this situation and I don't know what to do, his response to you depends on how his day is going. Or do you believe that God is good and that God is just? Being in pastoral ministry, you're, you're around people sometimes at the, the worst of their lives. And I've, I've buried children who died tragically and suddenly. All we can say to moms and dads and grandparents in those types of situations is God is good and God is just. And you have to hang on to that. 
We've seen people who refused. And we've seen people at the same time who in the midst of their pain and their anguish, unable to do anything but weep, held on to that, that anchor that God is good and that God is just. And I don't understand why this is happening. I don't get why this is happening. I, I don't understand any of this, but I believe that God is good and God is just. And that carries me through. The Lord doesn't play games with us. He's not cruel. He's not arbitrary. He is not teasing us. Do you believe in the person of God? Do you believe in the power of God? Do you believe in the character of God? I pray that you do. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your kindness to us, and for your graciousness to us. We thank you for your righteousness and for your holiness. We thank you that when we come to you and pray that we're coming to a person, that we're kneeling before your throne and coming to our Father. We thank you that just as with Abraham and Sarah, what you do isn't simply about my life. It's about a, a much, much bigger picture that I can't begin to comprehend. And there are places where you show us and there are places where you give us some understanding and some grasp of what's happening. But for the most part, Lord, we're, we're kind of in the dark. And the only recourse we really have is to trust you. And we thank you for your spirit enabling us to do that. And we thank you for the scripture that tells us so much of who you are. We thank you for the example of Sarah, who is not a perfect person, who didn't shine as, a, as an angel. She was real. Thank you for her faithfulness to you and for you safeguarding her. We trust you to do those things for us. Lord, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray.